Welcome again to the Richmond Road Baptist Church, and this is our presentation of the study of the Trail of Blood. This will be our second session. We had our first session last Sunday, and Lord willing, these things will be done, and you'll be able to refer to them later if you want to. I hope you do. It's very, uh, it's a great study. It's an interesting study, and there's just no end to the branches that you can study on this. Well, last time we passed out our handouts. If you that are watching, uh, if you want these handouts, uh, they're on the Facebook. I don't know how you do that, but if you, you can take those off and print them, or if you want us to send you some, we'll be glad to, but make sure you get, uh, get in touch with us in your name, and especially your mailing address, and we'll get them to you as soon as possible. So as we start tonight, I want to, I'm going to get on the Bible chronology. All of you that got your handouts, look at the Bible chronology. We got, it's, it's two pages, and, and the first page is the uh, Old Testament, B.C., before Christ, and the second page is uh, Arno Dominum, the A.D., the year of our Lord. Uh, for tonight, I'm going to go through this chronology on the Old Testament, the, uh, back to the creation. And we stated this last time. The first line would be creation, 4004 B.C. Uh, they, they're using B.C.E. and all that. I'm not into that. There's nothing wrong with what we've got. And so... And that date came from Archbishop Usher back in the 1600s that he, he fixed this, this chronology and did a tremendous job of it. Uh, people can laugh at that 4004, but the man, he did a tremendous job of this and he got down to dates. And you know, when you're in old, the Old Testament especially, but even the New Testament, we've got things in there that nobody in the whole world has. We've got names, dates, historical events, and you can't fault them. They're absolutely according to the truth. And so that makes this world about 6,000 years old. So what's that got to do with Baptist history? It's got a lot to do with it because the Lord didn't just put a church right out here in the middle of anything as an afterthought. This is all according to the purpose of God. Now, the next one, Noah is born. Now, these are close dates. When I need to, I try to, I just use round off numbers. But here, Noah's born at 2948. That would be 2,948 years before Christ. The way it works, you go from zero and go back. You count back to 4,004. When we get back to zero to go forward, we count forward up to 2000, 21 uh, to the 21st century. All right, so the second one would be the global flood, 2348. I always, if you're going to round the numbers off, 2500, thereabouts, that's pretty close. As I told you last time, the, the evolutionists, they want millions of years latitude uh, 
and that's what that that question said. Uh, the world's the universe is 14, uh, 13 billion years old, give or take a few billion years. And that to me, that's a ha ha. Uh, you know, how do you do that anyway? Uh, so there, the, and then also, I purposely put that terminology there: global flood. It was not a local flood. It would would have been impossible to have had a local flood. It could not have happened. It was global. Well, and there are so-called preachers that even preach that the the flood was was local. You could, how would you hold the water in? Where where are your restraints? Water. You get so much water out here, and it just levels out. It, it goes all over the place. You got to have something to bound it in, like a swimming pool, to hold the water. You have to, so there's there's no way you you could have had a local flood. It was global, and that's very important. And then twenty two forty two, which is what uh, twenty one hundred twenty six years after the flood, is the Tower of Babel or Babel. Some of them say. Tower of Babel, that's that's where we get the word Babylon. But Babel means confusion. And this was the Tower of Babel because that's where they began to build a tower to rebel at God's word and God confused the languages. Up until then, the, the Bible plainly says the whole earth was of one, one language, one speech. There wasn't a multitude of languages. I don't know if you've ever been to a country where they speak a different language. You go, to, you go to a country where they don't speak English and you don't speak their language and be there by yourself and see how scared you get. I don't care how big and bad you are. That's a, an awesome thing to have to... There's a big divide just with our languages. And that's when it all took place was at the Tower of Babel. All right, then, uh, 1996, uh, 1,996 years before Christ, Abraham was born. Of course, at the time, his name was Abram, but he became, became Abraham. That's the first Jew. Before this, there weren't any Jews. Abraham was a Gentile from Ur of the Chaldees, God made a Jew out of him. Guess what? That's what he did with me. By faith, God took an old Gentile heathen that had no family and made a, made a spiritual Jew out of me. Anybody that's saved, that's what happened to you. And that's why the Bible says Abraham, the father of the faithful. That's, good point. that's a good point. I think it's a great point. Anyway, it's true. So next is 1,500, thereabouts. You give or take a few years there. Moses, that's the time of Moses. That didn't give us his birth date, but it's about the time of Moses. And Moses authored the Pentateuch. So, well, we everybody knows that. No, they don't. That's one of the major uh, opposed points of the Bible by the liberals. They try to say that Moses didn't author the Pentateuch. But Jesus said he did, and the Bible plainly says that Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books. Now, Genesis, of course, Moses wasn't alive for all of that. 
Moses was born at the, the first chapter of Exodus, and there'd been a 400-year uh, break there from Genesis to Exodus. But, but he wrote down the book of Genesis, but Moses lived through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and he wrote them all. So, yes, there's no question. Moses is the author of the Pentateuch. Pentateuch, five books, first five books. Now, in, in uh, 1457, uh, 1457 years before Christ, the exodus from Egypt. There's no doubt about all these things. And then... From 1375 to 1050, Joshua, the time of Joshua, and the judges. Well, uh, then from that, we go to 970 to 930, and that's the time of David and Solomon. Well, that's, that's called the Hebrew monarchy because you had Saul, David, and Solomon, the kings of the uh, nation of Israel, and they weren't divided. It was all one nation. But then... At the death of Solomon, uh, there's the division of the kingdom. There's an N left off of that. Anyway, uh, the division is supposed to be division of the kingdom. 930, and that's probably pretty accurate. Maybe it's just a little bit, a year or so either, either way. But that's when, after Solomon died, then, then Jeroboam, uh, the son of Nebat, and Rehoboam, the son of, Re of uh, Solomon, that's when they had a fight, Jeroboam went to the north, Rehoboam stayed in the south, and he should have listened to some advice, but he didn't. Anyway, there's the division of the kingdom. So that's the great kingdom of Israel. Now is divided. You've got two. You've got the northern kingdom, and you've got the southern kingdom. Uh, now, Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom, and they lasted till 722 B.C., and that's when they were taken captive by the Assyrians. Uh, and then, I don't we didn't miss the date on the captivity of Jerusalem. That'd be 586 if, you, if you're filling us out. The captivity of Jerusalem, that's the southern kingdom. That's 586 B.C. So the southern kingdom lasted a little longer than the northern kingdom, but they both went into heresy, went into idolatry, and they both were taken into captivity. Now, uh, Jerusalem, or the southern kingdom, stayed in captivity for 70 years. And then at 516, that's the beginning of the restoration, the restoration of the southern kingdom. And then uh, the book of Daniel says in uh, the ninth chapter, uh, 70 weeks, talks about 70 weeks. And this, the going forth of the commandment to restore and to rebuild and that is 444 B.C. Uh, and then Malachi, about 400 B.C., and that would be the end of the Old Testament writings. Not the end of it, but it's the end of the writings. And so the Old Testament was written beginning with Moses in 1500 B.C., and it ends at 400 B.C., so it took 1,100 years to write the 37 books of the Old Testament. And then these are not scriptural dates, but they're in the time between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew. 250 is about the time 
of the Septuagint or the Septuagint, however you want to pronounce the 70s, that's what sept is in the 70s. Uh, supposedly 70 uh, translators made a, a translation into the classical Greek from the Hebrew and Aramaic scriptures of the Old Testament. And so that would be the first translation ever. And there's some a uh, little bit of controversy about it, but it's, it's pretty good translation. And then, then from them we go to 190, B.C., and that's the beginning of the Roman Empire, which has a whole lot to do with Baptist history, and all this has a lot to do with Baptist history. Now, I want to read this to you. You've got, you'll have it on your, your notes. <clears throat> this was a chronology, a study of time, time sequences. Now, uh, this is a book by an author named Philip Morrow, M-A-U-R-O. Anybody that's ever read anything after Philip Morrow knows he was one tremendous scholar. I don't know that I would even try to argue with him. Don't agree with everything he said, but I don't know that I would even try to argue with him. He's very, very knowledgeable. He was a lawyer and very knowledgeable. And he wrote a book, The Wonders of Bible Chronology. It just, it's just a small book, but it's an excellent little book. There's big books, Martin Anstey on the chronology of the Bible, a tremendous book, a big book, but it takes a whole lot of doing to get through that book. I need to slow down. I'm trying to get everything covered. I'm sorry. Uh, anyway, you want me to go back over that chronology again? Okay. All right. Our first one is, Creation, 4004 B.C. Our second one is Noah's born at 2948 B.C. Our next one is the global flood, 2348 B.C. Our next one is the Tower of Babel, 2242 B.C. Our next one is Abraham was born, 1996 B.C. Our next one is Moses wrote, wrote the Pentateuch and did his service around 1500 B.C. The Exodus from Egypt, that's when Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea into the desert wilderness. That date is 1,457 years before Christ. And after that, we go to 1375, all the way through to 1050 B.C. And in that range there is the time of Joshua, and of course the book of Joshua, and then the book of Judges, and the time of the Judges. Now you can... You, if you want to take a study of it, I've got something I could pass you out on that, that uh, you can pretty much determine that for yourself if you go through and take down all the, the time that the judges uh, ruled. Anyway, after that is 970 B.C. to 930. And that's the time of David and Solomon. That is, we call this the Hebrew monarchy. 
Well, our, the kings are Saul, David, and Solomon. And that's the Hebrew monarchy. Of course, monarch is a one is one ruler. Uh, and those were the glory days of Israel. And after Solomon, the kingdom divides, 930 B.C., <clears throat> become the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And that's very important if you're reading the Old Testament, especially in the, uh, Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. Uh, when... By this time, after this, after David and Solomon's time, when you see Israel, that's the northern kingdom. If it's Judah, it's the southern kingdom. And every now and then there's a few other terms used. Uh, the northern ten tribes, uh, Ephraim. Hosea says Ephraim has turned to idols. Let him alone. Ephraim, as a one word for the whole Northern Kingdom. What's that? The Elitites, the part for the whole or whole for the part? And that's what that is. Anyway, uh, next after that, 722 BC, the captivity of Samaria, which would be the Northern Kingdom. That's where the capital was. And see, that, that explains, that gets you into the New Testament. When, uh, when Jesus said, we must, I must needs go through Samaria. And the apostles didn't want to go because that's, what, what, why not Samaria? That's right in the middle of Israel. Well, the reason why is because when the Assyrians took the northern kingdom captivity, then they repopulated Samaria with curves from all over, like me, mixed, mixed, mixed race or mixed uh, ethnic background. Hines fits seven varieties. And, and so the Jews didn't want to have anything to do with them because they were ceremonially unclean. But that's that's how that happened. That's when that happened. All the way back. So then, the next one is the captivity of Jerusalem or the southern kingdom, and that would be 586 B.C. And those are important dates to remember. <clears throat> and next is the beginning of the restoration. Well, that's pretty easy to figure because they stayed in captivity. The southern kingdom stayed in captivity 70 years. Well, we find out the reason they stayed in captivity 70 years because they had cheated the Lord out of uh, 70 years in their in their uh, sab Sabbath years. You know, every sa seventh year, you're supposed to rest, land rest and all that. God got his 70 years back. And they, they got it in captivity. But this is when it begins to, to go back. And then, as I said, Daniel 9, 20, uh, 27, I think, right there about in the ninth chapter, that's the uh, 70 weeks. Those are weeks of years, prophetic years. Is that the, the command talks about the command to go, go forth, restore and to rebuild. And this is the command. Nehemiah talks about that. 444 B.C. He's the one that started. And then the next one is Malachi, and he's the last of the books of the Old Testament. And his ministry and pro uh, prophecy and writer, his book is 400 B.C., which is 400 years before Christ. Now, that's the end of the Old Testament writing, not the end of the Old Testament. 
But here's what they commonly call that 400 years between Malachi and the opening of the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. And what they call those are the 400 silent years. Well, that's kind of a misnomer. It's like there wasn't much happened in those 400 years. There was a tremendous amount that happened in those 400 years, and that's a, that's a separate study in itself. But during that time, at 250, the Septuagint was translated. That's the Greek, classical Greek, not New Testament Greek, that they translated the Hebrew and Aramaic Old Testament scriptures into Greek. Well, as far as we know, that's the first translation of the scriptures. And I've got a copy of it, and it's pretty good. And there's some people that believe that uh, Paul and Jesus even used the Septuagint, and they might have used it somewhat. Anyway, so that's pretty good. And then you got the last date we've got here, but that's not near the last date of anything that happened. But it's a major date, the beginning of the Roman Empire from 190 B.C. And this is, this is something we'll get back into this on the next part of this. <clears throat> the date of 476 A.D. That's a long time from here. 190 B.C. to 476 A.D. That's the official undisputed dates of the Roman Empire as a world power. I've never seen anyone that's ever contradicted that. That is, but you know, if you take 190 and add it to 476, do you know offhand how much that'd be? 666 years. Now, I'll ask you, and I'll leave it there. Is that a coincidence? I don't know. The Holy Roman Empire, the Roman Empire. All right. Now, are we, can we go ahead and read our little thing here? Our note. And this is what Philip Morrow says. Of course, he's been dead for a long time. But uh, I respect him as a great writer. The sources of chronology outside the Bible are scant to non-existent. I want that to sink in. Because you've got all of these people, that all about the pyramids and Egyptians and all that. The sources of chronology outside the Bible are scant to non-existent. That ought to make you realize how important the Bible is. Right. Now here are some of those sources. Uh, Synchronian. He lived at 1200 B.C. 1200 years before Christ. There's only a few fragments Broken pieces of pottery. That's only just a few fragments left of him. And you can't really tell a whole lot about it. Next, you've got Barosus of Babylon. And he lived in the 4th century B.C. Fragments only. Then the, the big one is Manetho. 
of Egypt. He lived in 3rd century B.C. But nothing remains, only incomplete quotes of other writers. They don't have Manitho's works. Just later writers quote something from him. All right? And then Ptolemy, that's P-T-O-L-E-M-Y. You don't pronounce the P. Ptolemy of Egypt. Now you had Ptolemies in Egypt and you had uh, Seleucids in uh, Israel, Palestine. Those were what were left of the Greek Empire. Remember we mentioned, maybe you don't remember, but in Daniel, uh, the Nebuchadnezzar's dream that Daniel interpreted. You had the gold head, big man, big idol uh, image, golden head, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron, feet of iron, and toes of clay and iron mixed, partly weak, partly strong. And that image stood. Well, the gold head, that was Nebuchadnezzar. That was the Neo, New, Neo was New, New Babylonians, all right? The ancient Babylonians at the Tower of Babel, that was the ancient Babylonian kingdom. But there's connections. And so, so the Canaans of Ptolemy, and we, the word Canaan means a measuring reed. But what is as a measuring reed? You measure to see how legitimate something is. So if something is, is Canaan, then it's authoritative. Uh, so that's what that word means. The Canaans of Ptolemy. Uh, that is the only other source than the Bible. But the truth about him is, he's so full of paganism. There's nothing truthful about it. It says nothing certain. And then there's Josephus. Josephus lived after Christ. He was a Jew. He wrote the war, the history of the wars of the Jews. And he mentions Christ a time or two. Uh, but he has a pretty good history book. And so he says that he wasn't right. And I believe Josephus rather than him. Only a list of Persian kings, that's all he had in that uh, Ptolemies, or Canaan's of Ptolemy but nothing to corroborate anything. I can make all kinds of assertions, but if I don't give you any proof of it, then you can take it or leave it. It could be right and it could be wrong, just like I read to you uh, the question I put on the uh, internet. How, they, how do they establish four, uh, 13 and a half billion years for the universe? He never gave me anything. Just a, a bunch of hogwash. Well, I don't have to leave. I don't care who he is. He can say what he wants to say. They say about the Bible, I don't believe it. Give me some proof that it's wrong. You have to have, you have to corroborate what you're saying. You can't just shoot from the hip and say something like that. At least people ought not to let them get away with it. Anyway, uh, so here's, he says, many contradictions. Here's what he says. It's, Ptolemy or the Bible? I'll take the Bible. He says, quote, the Bible is, now get this, is absolutely 
the only available source of information concerning the chronology of the human race prior to the 7th century B.C. That's a pretty big statement there. One must either accept the chronological information given in the Bible or do without. For there is none other, unquote, from Philip Morrow. I'd like somebody to prove that wrong. You can't do it, but I'd like to try. <laughs> try. Man, don't that make you feel good about the Word of God? It does me. I love it. I just dearly love it. All right. Uh, You don't feel it tomorrow? Yeah, I've, I've done a little read. Who made that last quote? Was that him? Yeah. Okay, so that's what Yeah, that whole thing came from that book. Yeah. Wonders of Bible Chronology. The one that made the last yeah, thing. yeah. Oh, yeah. The, Definitely. The quote. Yeah. Okay. That was quote unquote. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, now, uh, I'm not going to get on this yet. The world that Jesus Christ came into. What was in this world religiously? Well, there's all kinds of religions. We mentioned the Tower of Babel, and there's Nimrod. Uh, he was a, a rebel before God, that he was a mighty hunter. Find out he was a rebel before God, and he did things that he, he shouldn't have done. We don't find this out from the scriptures, but from Alexander Hislop's book, Two Babylons, he did a tremendous amount of study on that back in the 1800s. Some of them have tried to contradict him, but they just say they don't like it. They don't believe him. I think he's right. Anyway, Nimrod had a wife, and her name was Semiramis. Now, how do I know that? If it, you know, it's, and so he is the rebel, and here's what happens. They try to build a tower, go directly against what God said. He said, go replenish the earth. And they stood and wanted to build it all. Now, did they think that that tower was going to reach heaven? No, I don't think they did. Uh, but it was a, a, a stepped up, a ziggurat, like a, a pyramid or a ziggurat. Uh, probably that ziggurat, the step up thing like that. Anyway, here's what happened under Nimrod. Polytheism. Up until that time, there's only one God. There's still only one God. But you either worship God or nothing. But by, by the time, a hundred so years after the flood, they come up with all kinds of religion. Worshiping the stars, the sun, the moon, all sorts of things. The beginning of idolatry begins right there. Mm -hmm. 
Now, you can go to all these different countries and you can find histories, various names of their idolatry. But when you analyze it, it's pretty much all the same. And here's why. What happened at the Tower of Babel, the confusion of tongues, God did what he did immediately. And all of a sudden, they no longer can build. They, don't, they can't say brick and everybody understand it. And so they scattered. But what did those people do when they scattered? They took what they had learned at the Tower of Babel, at the ancient Babylon. And that's why you can go to uh, Egypt and you see the great pyramids. But you know they've got pyramids in Mexico. They've got pyramids in Indonesia. They've got them all over. I don't know what you, how many countries have got them. Where did they get that idea? They brought it with them. Where did they get their ideas of their idolatry? Now, what happened is that they made Nimrod a god. Oh, they said, well, that couldn't happen now. Really? I could see some so-called Baptist people trying to make a god out of another Baptist preacher. I mean, I mean, it really is not hard to see that. And if they weren't educated and didn't know the Lord, they could do anything. Do you, don't you know that the Japanese Empire, don't you know that they thought that the emperor of Japan was the god on earth? That was in, the, in World War II. I don't know whether they still do or not, but that's what they had to take into consideration when they were trying to make Japan surrender. The, the condition was that they had to leave the, the emperor there. What's his name? Uh... Yamamoto, it wasn't Yamamoto, but it was one of them anyway. Uh, because they, they worshiped the man. Well, you know what? In, uh, in China, Mao Zedong. Do you know that everywhere they had gigantic pictures of Chairman Mao? Don't you know in Russia, pictures of Joseph Stalin? I guess the others too, but the one that's in power, what do you think they have in North Korea? They actually are taught that that little fella is, is a god on earth. So, I mean, it's not hard to see how they had that back there, and that's where idolatry starts. But that's not where it stopped, because as they spread out, they bring it with them. In most Countries, I can't say all because I haven't been to all. Uh, but in most countries where they have a history of idolatry, there's always a man, a woman, and a miraculously conceived child. Well, in the book of Ezekiel, you can find where, where the Israelite women, they wept for Tamas, T-A-M-M-U-Z. That was the offspring of uh, Nimrod and Semiramis. 
I noticed this when we were in Hungary, in Romania, the, especially Romania, with the Eastern Orthodox Catholic churches there. I don't know if y'all noticed when you was there or not. But they they may not have idols, but boy, do they have pictures and icons. All of those buildings that they are their churches, they have pictures inside every wall space and outside. And they've all got a picture of a woman. At first glance, it looks like she's got a baby. It's not a baby. It's a young man standing there. But there, and that's supposed to be Mary and Jesus. It's supposed to be. Not so, not, not at all. Do you know in Mexico, when they went, when the Catholics went in, a, they found them already worshiping a woman and a baby. That's why it was no problem to spread Roman Catholicism into Mexico and all of those countries. They already had it. Where did they get it? It came to them from Babel, Babylon, ancient Babylon. So what's that have to do with us? Where do you think most of our persecutions came from at least early on, but it still does right now because things do not just happen by themselves. Things are connected. All right, so uh, you had... Back in those days, you had Hinduism. But how old is Hinduism? Well, it ain't hardly as old as Abraham. Now, maybe some of you didn't even know that tonight. I mean, never have thought about it. But they act like that Hinduism is, is old. But it's the very latest, earliest you can get it is 1200 B.C. That'd be... 200 years before David. And then the modern branches of it, much later than that. What about Hinduism? Somewhere I've got a book from Hinduism. And it's got pictures of their gods that they worship. You've never seen so many, and you've never seen such weird-looking creatures. I mean, they got 20 arms, and I mean, just it's it's unbelievable. It, it's just unbelievable. And they're intelligent people, but it's not intellect; it's spiritual, and that's what they have. Some of the worst heathenism, some of the worst idolatry that you've ever seen in your life, and that's what Hinduism is. Uh, now, but now to be a to be a Hindu, you've got to be born into it. They don't they don't proselyte. And then you have the Buddhist. Well, Gautama Buddha was the man. And uh, this goes back maybe to 600 BC. Uh, and then there are other derivatives. And this is kind of a derivative of Hinduism, but it's less extreme. And it's all about meditation. Well, Buddhism has fed into transcendental meditation and these new age and all of this stuff that we've seen in our time. Well, that's, that's where that came from. So, well, 
Does that have anything to do with Baptist? What it even does right now. It's, it's, it's taking place as we're taking place. Anyway, then you had another one in Persia, Zoroastrianism. The guy's name was Zoroaster that started it about 660 to 583. Uh, well, you can see at least it's sun god worship. Persian dualism or Zoroastrianism. The god's name Ahura Mazda and Ormuzd and Mithras and Parsis, the sun god. Well, that's Persian Parsis. Is. Now, that's real troublesome for us, and I'll tell you why. Because it was that religion that established most of Catholicism, Roman Catholicism. Most of what they do and their masses and all that did not come from the Bible. It came from Mithraic Persian sun god worship. Well, how did that happen? Because that's where Constantine was. We'll get into that as we get there. But anyway, uh, much of Roman Catholic liturgy and doctrine are carries over from that. Then you probably won't get all this, but Manichaeism, 3rd and 4th century A.D., spin off of that dualism. Now, here's the thing about that dualism. And you say, well, I've never heard anything. Well, you listen, and you might hear somebody. They might not even know they're talking about it. The big doctrine of Zoroastrianism, eternal, a conflict from eternal good and eternal evil. And to most people, that sounds pretty reasonable. But here's the problem. Evil is not eternal. Amen. Only good is. That's God. Amen. God is good. And he's eternal. Evil is not eternal. Evil came from created beings. Lucifer and uh, Adam and Eve. So don't ever let anybody say that there's an there's an eternal conflict between good and evil. And to them, evil is just as strong as good. Not so. There is no eternal. There is a conflict. Jesus and Satan. Satan against Jesus. But it's not an eternal conflict. Amen. Not at all. So we have to remember that. Then I'll mention this. Just give it to you in passing. The, the philosophers. Look at Colossians 2 real quick. Verse 8, Colossians 2, verse 8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Philosophy and vain deceit. Now, when kids go to college, well, I guess they get it in school too. Uh, they learn philosophy. Some of them get in it. And they, they go hog wild with it because all of the different philosophers, you had Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, all back in that same time, 469, 427, 384, 
Uh, so those three major philosophers, then there's so many others. And, and the things that they, that they philosophized about, philosophy just means love of wisdom. And the things that they talked about, I've read several of them. Uh, not from the standpoint I'm trying to learn what they've got to say. I'm just trying to, trying to see how bad their heresy is. And every one of them are wrong. They may get some things right, but every one of them go down a blind alley. They don't know where to go with it. And so that philosophy, that has fed all those false religions. And it shouldn't be feeding us, but they, we, we go to school, they learn that. There's something else they learn. They learn all about the Greek mythology. Now, the Roman mythology, you know, the Greeks captured the Romans, but the Greek, uh, the R Romans captured the Greeks, but the Greeks conquered the Romans. That's what they say because the Greeks were captured by the Roman Empire. And then they got all the Greek philosophers to teach the Roman kids, and there they conquered the Romans by their ways. Anyway, you can find more people that know all about the mythology of the Greek gods and even the Roman gods. They don't know anything about the Bible, but they know all that stuff. Well, you're talking about soap opera? Those stories about those Greek gods, that's unbelievable. It's all totally a figment of their imagination. They talked about Atlas holding the world up on his shoulders. God hung the earth on nothing. And that's what they've got. Which, can you imagine a man that big? No, you can't. And they couldn't either. But they're wicked imaginations. And that's why Paul talked about philosophy and vain deceit. Don't be destroyed by it. All right. Uh, now, the trail of blood, we open up and we see the church that Jesus built. Now, what kind of world was it in? Well, I'm telling you what kind of world it was in with all of what I just relayed to you. And every bit of that play, plays a part of it somewhere, uh, some shape, fashion, or form. Look what he says here to begin with in the book. He tells the story of how it got here. And then uh, he gives us Look on page five, marks of the New Testament church. Now, here's what I always say. Remember, we made our we make our observation from the scriptures, our scientific method. That's our observation. We read what Matthew 16, Matthew 28 say, and that's our observation. And then we form a hypothesis from what we observe there. We believe that the Lord's churches have been here ever since. And then we make our prediction that we can find them. Then we go after them, conduct an experiment, and then we analyze the results. So after we get through here, we're not depending on the history books to teach us the perpetuity of Baptist churches. We're depending on the Bible. If we know what the Bible says, that's all really all we need. But as our uh, prediction is, we're just going to see uh, as to the truthfulness of our prediction. All right, so he says marks of a New Testament church. Well, I've been hunting a few times in my life, not many. But if, if you go rabbit hunting, first you ought to know what a rabbit looks like. Agreed? 
Why, you lot would come back with one of them black and white long-tailed things and think you got a rabbit. That's not a rabbit. I've never seen one like that. Rabbit's got a rabbit bunny tail. Don't have it long. Anyway, a skunk. All right, so you ought to know what a church looks like. So uh, Brother Walker, I think, at first, and then Dr. Carroll. Number one, the marks of a New Testament church. Its head and founder is Christ. He's the lawgiver. The church is the only the executive. And there it is in Matthew 16, 18. On this rock I'll build my church. That's point number one, the marks of a New Testament church. Point number two, it's on a rule of faith and practice is the Bible. Now, that's a major point. All these are. Uh, if the Bible is really our only rule of faith and practice, shouldn't we depend on it even more? <clears throat> Number three, the name of the Lord's church. It is church or churches. Uh, I said, I build my church. Well, we know what the word means in the Greek, ecclesia. And at the time that the New Testament's written, Jesus used that word the first time in Matthew 16, 18. Uh, there is a something about a law of first mention, and that's the first mention. And what did that word mean then? It didn't even mean called out. It meant assembly. So ecclesia, I will build my assembly, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Then you find other references but it's always churches. For example, in the book of Galatians, Paul writes to the churches of Galatia. Now, I find this from a lot of folks right today, even Baptists. They say the church is in trouble today. I said, what church? They don't mean a particular church. They mean all churches as the church, the big church. Well, you don't ever find that in Scripture. When you find more than one church, it's church plural, the churches. And so it's either church or churches in the, in the scripture. Now, is there such a thing as a church, uh, ideally speaking? Yeah. In, but that's nothing more than the automobile has drastically altered the life of everybody since 1900. The automobile has. You say, which automobile are you talking about? I'm not talking about any particular. I'm talking about the concept of an automobile, four wheels and a self-powered engine and a steering wheel that carries you. That's, that's the automobile. That's what I mean there. But that's the only thing else you find in there is the church in its concept. But it's never talking about some universal Invisible or universal visible. So anyway, number four, number three, number four, it's polity. That's the way it's governed. Uh, it's congregational. And it, Jesus said, it's, it's quoted here, somewhere there in Ephesians, he said, or Matthew, one is your master, even Christ, and all of you are brethren. So here, and a lot of folks don't like this. Uh, they get the big churches and get the big head and get the big, big axe. And uh, they get the board of deacons or get a finance committee and all that. 
And next thing you know, the congregation never hears anything going on. It's all behind closed doors. I remember one time I wanted to go talk, go talk to them, and I had to get special permission to go to a deacon's meeting, and I was a member of the church. Well, I went, but I had to get special permission to, and it they didn't say a word. I went there and they let me say what I say, and when I got done with that, I left, and then they started the meeting. They wouldn't say a thing in front of me. I'm a member of the church. I'm a tithes-giving, offering-giving member of the church. Well, according to the Bible, the congregation is where the authority is. Jesus Christ's head, the Holy Spirit's administrator. The pastor's the under-shepherd, the overseer. But the church, the congregation is where the authority is. So that's the way the Lord's churches have always been. But in these last 150 years, organizations have taken over them. Well, they shouldn't have. We've got the scriptures. We know what they are. So the politics congregation, five, number five, it's members, only saved people. Do you realize that would separate you from the majority of churches in existence today? We don't bring in any members except somebody who is given evidence that they're born again, saved by the grace of God. That excludes babies. We don't have anything against babies, but a baby can't repent and believe the gospel. So we'll find out that all these little churches, these little groups here, they all went along with all of these. Uh, so then he says, uh, for number six, it's ordinances. An ordinance is an order, a specific ordinance, give, or order given by the Lord. Now, this term, believer's baptism, followed by the Lord's Supper, I'm against using that term nowadays. These brethren didn't mean anything by that bad. That seemed to be a, a, a reasonable term. Nowadays, when they say believer's baptism, that means that they'll accept about any baptism other, you know, any baptism. You just got to say you're a believer. And then if you're a believer, they don't even question the baptism. They accept that. But you see, most of this persecution that we're going to find out about, this is the reason that they were persecuted. It's because they wouldn't accept baptism unless it was performed as the scriptures dictate. And so they began to be called Anabaptists, rebaptizers. They didn't rebaptize, they baptized for the first time. But anyway, believers' baptism followed by the Lord's Supper. Number seven, it's officers, pastors, and deacons. And that's only two officers. Now, this is something extremely important. There are three terms that the Bible uses, the New Testament uses, for a pastor. First is pastor. That's from the Greek word poimenos. It means one who feeds the flock. Comes from shepherd, flock feeder. And what's he feed? Sheep food. He feeds the sheep of God, sheep food. So a pastor is number one, a pastor. Number two, he is a bishop. And that word in the Greek is episkopos. 
and it means one who presides over. And then thirdly, he's an elder, presbuteros, meaning he's one who has attained unto maturity in the word of God. Now, all three of those terms apply to the one office of pastor. Now, that second one, bishop, this is a real problem in studying Baptist history. All majority of these uh, history books, some of them good with some of it, but they get to the word bishop. And they call everything that's a bishop a Catholic. Even before there was ever a Catholic church. And here's the reason why. It's because Catholics and Episcopalians and maybe a few others have cabbaged on that term bishop and they use it unscripturally. They use the term bishop as a preacher who's over top of other preachers. It's a big, big term. But it's not that. Any pastor of any New Testament church, he's a pastor, he's a bishop, and he's the elder. Yeah. Now, that's scripture. That is absolutely right. So when you get to reading, reading a, a history book, and there's a lot of other denominations that write history books, and they've got some good points about them. But when they, when they see the word bishop, they automatically put it down as Catholic. That these were Catholic. They're not Catholics. Not at all. Just a bishop of a church. And we'll get into more of that later. Uh, I think we're time's about up. We got eight on page eight. The work of the church is uh, uh, preaching the gospel and baptizing and commanding to observe. Number nine, it's financial plan, tithes and offerings. Some of them don't believe in tithing. Well, that's pretty handy for you to believe that. <clears throat> if you can convince yourself the Bible doesn't teach it, then you just give whatever you feel like giving or not give at all. <laughs> but the Bible does teach it. And for a child of grace, why would you uh, kibble over that? Uh, what's wrong with 10%? And that's what that is. And the truth is 10% is on your increase and an offering is on your abundance. But you can rob God if you don't give a tithe of your increase, you're robbing God. But also, if you don't give an offering above your tithe, you're still robbing God. Read the book of Malachi. And Jesus said, these things you ought to have done. Yeah, I believe the Bible teaches tithing. But I haven't tithed in years. <laughs> anyway, give more to tithe. That's, if you've got to have a place to start, that's a place to start. Number 10, the weapons of warfare are spiritual and not carnal. Uh, we get all that in Ephesians 6. Number 11, it's independence. Separation of church and state. Uh, let's see if I if I remember to get those papers where I needed them. Uh, hang with me just a second on that separation of church and state. Here it must be. Is it under here? I don't know. Uh, Y'all have to forgive me just a little bit. No, it's not in there. It's, it's got to be here. Anyway, that's been a real problem in the last 30 years that the liberals have used that separation of church and state against the Lord. 
and against his word. Well, I, I had this thing, and I don't... I, all right. The church separation issue. They say, oh, the Supreme Court even used it. Uh, the separation of church and state, the Constitution demands that. The Constitution doesn't say a word about it. Not a word. All the Constitution says is in the Bill of Rights, number one, bill, number, first Bill of Rights, Congress shall make no law with respect to religion, to its free exercise thereby. Congress, it's not against us, it's against Congress. They can't determine what we do in our church. They can't do it. Say, so, well, I thought it was separation of church and state. No, no. It was in a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote in 1802 <clears throat> to the Danbury Baptist in Connecticut because <clears throat> they were worried about it because the Constitution didn't say anything specifically about religious freedom. And Thomas Jefferson wrote and said, I had the letter, it, I've got it here someplace, uh, that he's concerned about it himself, and that's where that First Amendment came from. But they didn't, they didn't restrict churches, they restricted Congress. But Congress turned that all around now. Anyway, uh, there is the first set, about time I do this other one right now, Here's some other ones. Look at page 13. This shows you that different men have different, different opinions. These are not contradictory. They're just two different, two different opinions of the marks of the church. Number one, Christ, the author of this religion, organized his followers or his disciples into a, an assembly. And there he's Baptist uh, uh, D.B. Ray. The organization of church according to scriptures, according to practice, and <clears throat> given two officers. He's saying the same thing, just putting it in a different format. Churches in their government, number three, discipline, be entirely separate, independent of each other. So one church does not have authority over another church. And that's the way Baptists have been from the very uh, beginning. To the church are given two ordinances, baptism and Lord's Supper. Five, only the saved will be to receive. Sixth, inspired scriptures, uh, the rule of faith and practice. Number seven, Christ Jesus, the founder, uh, Savior, be their only priest. We have no priest but Jesus Christ. He's our great high priest. Uh, individual, personal, number eight, number nine, neither Christ nor his, his apostles ever gave to his followers what's known today as a denominational name, such as Catholic, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, and so forth, unless the name given by Christ to John was intended for such. And that's we find that Jesus called John the Baptist before he ever baptized. So if there's a name in the book for a church, it's Baptist. Uh, anyway, one more uh, distinction mark, separation of church and state. We just talked about that. All right, then we get on to the chart. I don't know. It's after 7 o'clock. I think I better. Well, We'll take it up the next time. If you've got questions or comments, please let us have them. We'll try to entertain them. May the Lord bless you.